Well, it's lovely to be here with you tonight. How many of you have heard the word jhana? How many of you have heard the word samadhi? And how many have heard the word vipassana? The books that I wrote are basically about the development of samadhi, which is the unification of mind through a particular kind of, a particular approach to concentration and that unification of mind, which leads to deep absorption states called jhana. And the purpose for concentrating the mind is what? Vipassana. We cultivate concentration in order to have the capacity to see things clearly. Vipassana translates as clear seeing. We often call it insight, but the literal translation is clear seeing. And so we concentrate the mind in order to see things clearly. We cultivate both concentration and insight in our practice. Now, I've been meditating since about 1980, so I had been doing quite a bit of insight meditation, very much the way that you learn here. And about in 2001, I was, interested, I was introduced um, very briefly to um, what are called the jhanas, or the absorption states. But it was a very brief introduction. It just gave me a hint of what these um, states are. And so in 2003, I undertook a nearly year-long retreat in which I focused primarily on the development of concentration. And it had been my intention to just sort of warm up my year-long retreat with a little concentration practice. And as I learned, the, as I established the jhanas using the breath as the primary object and entered into these absorption states of concentration, I started to understand how incredibly rich this arena of development was and how deeper concentration led to deeper insight. And so I was, became very interested in this practice of using jhana or concentration as the basis for insight and was practicing these methods of, of, of concentrating the mind and then applying it to insight. And um, after that year-long retreat of approaching constant this combination of deep, absorptive concentration and insight practice from various angles. One of my teachers, one of my lay teachers, suggested that I write a book because at that time not much had been written on the subject. And so I tried, I wrote this um, Focused and Fearless, which in many ways served my practice because after a year of retreat, I needed to think You know, I needed to think about it. I needed to reflect, which isn't the same thing as going into absorption. (laughs) So I used the writing of the book as a part of the process of integrating that year-long retreat into my understanding and my, my life. And I incorporated a lot of explanations and um explorations of how to cultivate concentration in daily life. How to cultivate concentration 
in the life of living in the Bay Area, not only in a you know, year-long retreat. So Focused and Fearless is a book about concentration, and it basically deals with all the primary obstacles that come in when we sit down and want to concentrate the mind. What happens? I mean, we sat down, we wanted to focus on the breath, right? We wanted to bring our attention into the present moment. But there were probably some moments for all of us where we weren't actually doing that, where the mind went off into its own patterns, it got lost in something, it went into dullness. So we know about the classic hindrances, but when we approach the hindrances from the perspective of concentration and jhana, we sometimes... um, um, We develop the practice differently when we're aiming for jhana than when we're just settling the attention. And so this book deals with concentration as and gives the instructions for cultivating concentration, but also a sequence of four absorption states, which are called the four jhanas, and the formless attainments, which use space and consciousness and nothingness um, as an as the um, object of concentration. Well, after I was um, doing this practice for some time of concentration, I learned of a teacher who was a um, renowned, one could say, master of jhana, as well as vipassana. His name is Pawak Sayadaw from Burma. And I uh, attended a retreat with him, and I was... Wasn't sure. I mean, I'd never met him before, so I didn't. So it was a nice short retreat. My first retreat with him was only one month. So, I, I thought, okay, I can test this out, see see what he's like, and I was blown away when I practiced with him because what I was stumbling through trying to figure out how to do by reading old texts and trying to refine sources in the suttas and putting t- piecing together little fragments of instructions that I gathered from a whole bunch of different lay teachers to try to figure out how to do these practices um, in a consistent way in a in a in a um, system in a in a consistent way on my own I was stumbling through them because I didn't have systematic instructions when I met Pawak Sayadaw he gave systematic instructions what had taken me weeks to establish fumbling through my process, I could do in a matter of days using his methods. The, tradi- the Buddhist tradition has, preser- has developed and preserved an incredible technology of meditation. But often we don't know it if we don't have a teacher to teach us or written materials that are clear enough to read. So um, when I did this one-month retreat with Venerable Palak Sayadaw, um, I, um, I was impressed, let's say, very impressed. So I quickly signed up for the next four-month retreat with him. And in that retreat, he guided me through what are called the 40 objects of concentration in the Theravada tradition. And how many people have seen the Visuddhimagga? It's a 5th century meditation manual that um, that gives comprehensive instructions on concentrate on on virtue the development of virtue the development of concentration and the development of insight and wisdom and 
basically the practice that I've been undertaking for the last few years is very inspired by and um, relies upon the teachings of the Visuddhimagga, this 5th century meditation manual, and the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, the commentarial tradition, and also the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology. And the training that Pawak Sayadaw um, guided me through included deep concentration practice, not just establishing the four jhanas with the breath as the object, but then going on to work with the body objects, the 32 parts of the body, then establishing the four jhanas with colors and with um, elements, and then doing the formless absorptions and using the Brahma-viharas, the loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity as the objects, doing the death reflections and the contemplation of the corpses to do all of the traditional practices, basically. And so there's sort of this... um, array, one could say, of meditation objects, many of which are stable enough to take the mind into jhana. So it was a training that, that, that um, emphasized the deepening of concentration because when the mind is deeply concentrated, we can see things more clearly. As the Buddha said, one who is concentrated knows things as they really are. So once the mind is concentrated, then what do we need to know as it really is? We turn our attention then to the body and to the mind. And we look at the body not as this big concept, my body. We look at the body really carefully because the mind is concentrated. It's laser-like. It's bright. And so we, we, it's, it's, it's stable and and kind of um, a happy, energized, energized. It wants to know reality. And so when we shine that kind of bright mind, we focus our attention after coming out of absorption, we focus the attention on the body, then we can discern the subtle elements that are at play, that are arising and passing, and observe what this, what material, what matter is, what material form is. Not the concept body, but the, the, um, the hardness, the roughness, the characteristics of body. We can see how things function and how they arise, how they pass. And so we observe the body really carefully. And then we turn the attention to the mind because body never exists without the mind. Can you know your body without the mind? No, every time we know the body, the mind is functioning. And so we can focus on the body as an object, but we can also turn the attention back on the mind that is knowing the body. And so in an experience of hearing or seeing or tasting or smelling or touching, there is a material sensitivity, a material element, part of matter, that is sensitive to that sensory impact. But there is the mind that is perceiving it, that knows it. There's consciousness. There's a feeling associated with it. And there's a whole host of mental factors that flavor that experience, that flavor the experience so that we know there's a different experience between being afraid and being delighted, isn't there? There's a very different experience because they have different mental factors. We know there's a different experience between being jealous 
and being conceited. Different, uh, different mental factors. Having um, equanimity is different than, um, than having um, anger because the mental factors that are at play are different. And so we turn the, con- after we've concentrated the mind, we turn the attention to an experience of contact, say seeing or hearing or touching. And in that moment of contact, we experience the mind apprehending that contact. It's called a cognitive process. And the, the Buddhist commentary in Abhidhamma has analyzed these cognitive processes into very refined detail, into the 17 mind moments. And each mind moment has different mental factors associated with it. The concentrated mind can perceive these. And so this is not a theoretical exploration of mind and matter and trying to an, um, memorize um, you know, Abhidhamma lists, but instead it is a direct perception of matter and mind and what happens in contact. So because the mind is stable and concentrated, it has the power to see the mind and the body clearly. Because it has practiced, we've, because we've practiced in, concent, in the concentration portion of the training, holding an object and bringing attention to it, just as we practice bringing our attention back to the breath again and again. Oh, the mind gets lost, we come back to the breath. You all did that, right? Mind got lost, come back to the breath. You're practicing folks, focusing your attention on a particular object. As you do that over time, and the continuity of the mindfulness gets, gets um, builds, you'll find that you're not actually wandering off the breath. You're staying right with the breath. And the attention is not going anywhere. You have a continuity of knowing your meditation object moment by moment by moment by moment. So when you're not wandering off anymore, the mind starts to cohere and collect and and. Um, unify in the knowing of the meditation object. In, in, the, in the instructions I gave you earlier, we were using the breath as the meditation object. So as you're knowing the breath, the mind is starting to cohere in the knowing of the breath. When the mind is, co- is, is unified, it becomes very light, very buoyant, happy, quick, um, malleable, flexible. It's, um, it has really... Uh, beautiful qualities. It's a very wholesome state to have a unified mind. And so as the mind gets unified and has practiced holding a single object, we apply that can apply that same skill to looking at the body and looking at the mind. So we can focus our attention on a particular aspect of, say, the experience of touch what happens in a moment of, 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 of hardness or when we're feeling heat and we want to understand how the mind is knowing that. We can shine that concentrated attention, that light of the mind, we can shine it on that experience and the mind is steady enough and holding its object clear enough that we can have a penetrative experience of that phenomenon, whether it's of body or of mind. So there's this progression, concentration to an, an analysis of, of matter and an analysis of mind, mentality. 
in Pali, Nama, and Rupa. Then we go to another, you could call these, I call them sort of like units. It felt like going through a curriculum. They even call it a course. And so then the next sort of section or chapter or, um, or cor- of curriculum is to analyze cause and effect. And this is done through the cycle of dependent arising. And we basically are looking at each effect, what were the causes for it? What, how do things function together? How do causes and effects play out in experience? And so we look at matter, we look at mind, and we look at the causes and effect. We look at basically we're looking at the relationships that are at play in the knowing of, of, of mental and material phenomena. But then what do we do? Okay, so now we've got a lot of understanding, right? We've now concentrated the mind. We've looked at matter. We've looked at mind. And we've understood a little bit of the causes and effects. Now we're really smart, right? We've got the Buddhist thing down. That's not the point. What we're doing here is we've, we're, in a way, um, gathering our objects for vipassana practice. Because what is it that we see clearly when we're doing vipassana practice? What we're attending to, what we're observing in vipassana practice, is we are observing the arising and perishing of mental and material phenomenon. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what we're seeing when we're doing vipassana. Is the arising and perishing of mental and material phenomenon and their causal relationships. And so, once we've analyzed matter and we've analyzed mind, then we don't just take a very coarse experience of, I am sitting here feeling warm. That's too kind of um, coarse. We instead look at the particular moments of contact and see those particular um, consciousnesses arising and passing within the 17 mind moment structure. Are you getting a little dizzy with all the numbers yet? Yeah, but I wanted you to get a sense that there is detail behind this. And this detail is a part of the Buddhist tradition. I had practiced for decades before I was introduced to a me- method for experiencing these details in my own practice. And it was, revel- re- it was a revelation to me. I was so thrilled, I was so excited to find that there were practical methods that had been preserved by monastics for thousands of years to teach us how to see these things for ourselves so that they're not just abstract theoretical lists, but they're actually something that we can experience in our meditation. So what we then do is we now have all different aspects of matter as our objects for vipassana and all different aspects of mind and consciousness and cognition as our aspects for vipassana. And so how do we... What what does it mean to practice vipassana? Practicing vipassana is based on contemplating the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of phenomena. And so we look at everything that we had previously discerned and then contemplate it as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self, the three characteristics. How many of you are familiar with the three characteristics? 
Yeah. See, most of you are familiar with most of these concepts. Because what I'm describing is the traditional Theravada Buddhist approach. What was so exciting for me was encountering a method that was so clear, clearly, clear, was encountering clear instructions for how to realize these things for myself. Not in a haphazard or sketchy way, but systematically. And so in that four-month retreat, Venerable Pawak Sayadaw guided me through the concentration practices what, and then these practices that are called the discerning of, of, of matter and of mind and of cause and effect. Um, and then through the vipassana practices. And the vipassana practices, as you're contemplating the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of everything in minute detail, I mean everything in minute detail, again and again, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. Oh, I forgot about thinking, of course. Also thoughts and all mental objects are contemplating as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Again and again and again and again with a very concentrated mind. The power of the concentration and the intensity of the insight and the the power of that contemplation that's supported by concentration propels the mind through a sequence of stages of insight knowledge. And those stages of insight knowledge start observing the impermanent and unsatisfactory and not-self aspects of things in relatively coarse ways. The mind feels a little bit clumsy. It kind of knows that it's impermanent, but it's still a little bit clumsy. And it gets more and more refined, more and more refined. And in that refinement, there's a process of recognizing, hey, there's not going to ever be happiness for me by attaching to those things. And that, that's not just an intellectual sense because you all know you're never going to be happy by attaching to things, right? Yeah, you all know that. But if we really know that or when we really know that, we don't cling. We only are attached to things when we are not knowing that. And so by, by doing this kind of systematic, methodical practice, we, um, we, we realize very deeply that happiness is not going to be found in, aspect, in, in attachment to anything of matter and mind. The, and we establish profound equanimity with all things. And the mind has the possibility of not only not seeking happiness in them, but almost peeling away from them, almost pulling away, uh, 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 not attaching, really not attaching, and not having the slightest um, attraction to matter and mind. And in that moment, the mind has the possibility, as it turns away from all conditioned phenomenon, there's the possibility that it could realize the unconditioned the deathless, the unborn, Nibbana. So the practice goes from distraction to Nibbana. That occurs in 500 and... Five, including the index 540, 550 pages. From distraction to Nibbana. And that's basically what we are always doing in our practice. 
is we're struggling to overcome the obstacles in our meditation, which for the most part are distractions, so that we can experience some release, so that we can know the freedom, the ending of suffering. After, a, after sitting that four-month retreat, um, Venerable Palak Sayadaw asked me to write a book on the subject. And I had not actually planned on writing another book. I had felt like after writing Focused and Fearless, I should relax a little bit, hang out, sit a few retreats. You know, I, it, the Focused and Fearless had come out just earlier that same year. I thought it was time to kick back a little bit. But um, he asked me quite a few times to, to write a book on that subject. And by the end of the retreat, I was feeling so much appreciation for the clarity of the instructions that I had received and so much gratitude for his teaching. And I was very aware, having lived in um, monasteries in Asia, that these teachings are not always available. It's hard to find somebody who can teach them in English. It's hard to find conditions to practice them thoroughly enough to be able to write about them. And it's hard to find a master willing to teach a lay woman. And because I felt like I had the conditions and I was filled with gratitude, I just said yes. So I spent the next three years writing this book. And then I attended another four-month retreat this past year. It ended in November um, with him again. And um, we put a, sort of put the finishing touches on this book. He, um, he edited some of the Vipassana sections and uh, actually about well, at least maybe five monks from his monastery had previously edited the book so that they could um, uh, kind of check some of the Abhidhamma details. I had to do a lot of study to write this book because I wasn't um, educated in the Abhidhamma. Uh, So um, I did a lot of reading of commentaries in the last few years, which was quite fun, and um, also had the support of monastics who were much more um, uh, educated in these subjects um, also, right? But what I wanted to present was not um, only a traditional approach. I wanted to present an integrated approach. I wanted to present the Dhamma that could be practiced by Westerners, and that would make sense to us, that would make sense to me. I had read these same practices. None of them are invented by my teacher. They are all found in the the Visuddhi Magga, the Vimuti Magga, or the commentaries. They're all available. It's not like his practice, his method. But when I read them a couple of decades ago in the Visuddhi Magga, it just never occurred to me that anybody did them. You know, they were, they seemed so, um, they seemed so difficult. And so what I've done in this book, and what I hope you'll find supportive for your own practice, is that um, each chapter goes through all the different concentration practices, and each different concentration object has a certain effect, it has a certain function and purpose. Um, Uh, Entering absorption based on the colors and experiencing the incredible happiness and bliss of jhanas based on, say, red 
it's one experience, and it's quite a different one to enter the first jhana based on a livid corpse. They're not the same experience, yet they're both jhana. Uh, entering jhana based upon compassion as its own experience, just as it's different entering it bit with the equanimity as the object or the breath as the object. And so even though the instructions are relatively similar, I found different objects to have a different effect on my consciousness. And so every chapter in the concentration section and also the insight section explains the teaching that arises that's relevant to that subject, to that meditation subject. And then there are boxes that have... um, Instruction that have reflections that are applicable to daily life, just our regular daily lives. How to develop that, how to look into that, how to explore that in the context of a work life, a family life. And then there is a section in most all the chapters that's called meditation instructions. Some of those will only make sense if you're in a retreat. You can look at them, you can skim them. Some of them you can do in your daily life but some of them really need the protective container of some silence. But I wanted to include the traditional instructions because these practices are doable. And when I had read the Visuddhimagga, I didn't get that, that they were doable. So I've I've presented the instructions for them in a way that makes it very clear that they're doable because I've done them all multiple times now. I now know they're doable. And so there's the systematic and traditional instructions that are also included in each chapter. And then there are also some charts and some tables to provide an introduction to Abhidhamma theory, to to provide an introduction to how the Buddhist psychology analyzes the mind and the cognitive, the the way we know things, the way we cognize things. And so this book is... I think relatively comprehensive because it tries to address daily life, it tries to address theory, it tries to address basic teachings, and it tries to go all the way from distraction to Nibbana. There's a lot that I could say about these practices, but I think I'd like to... Um, hear questions from you, which will guide the direction of my of my of, more, of my further comments. I wanted to give you just a little sense of where I was coming from by telling you a little bit about why I wrote the book and um, where I had practiced, why, why what the practices were that I had done. But I'm very interested to hear if you have some questions about anything I've said anything about your own development of concentration, jhana, vipassana? Um, Do you have any questions? Somebody has a microphone. Yes. Hello. So when teachers discuss these jhana states... You know, it all sounds quite alluring, but as someone who, you know, has only had the opportunity as a lay person to sit, you know, a 10-day retreat here or there, you know, maybe a four-week retreat once in my lifetime, um, I'm quite skeptical about the 
ability to reach those states unless one is in, as you have been, in long retreats. It's a fair question, um, and I sometimes hesitate to say that I have done such long retreats because it makes you think that I, it took a year to get into jhana. It only took a few weeks for me. Um, um, and once you learn the method, then it only takes a few hours maybe. You just warm up. Some people can do it really fast. I tend to not do it so much in my daily life, so I have to warm up when I go into retreat. If I kept it going and I maintained it more in my daily life, then it would be much faster. Um, some people are very quick. I've had students that are so quick, I just I can't keep up with them. And many people, though, can seem to do everything right, and they still don't get into jhana. It's the whole range. So when I teach, I don't make jhana the emphasis of the retreat, even on what appears to be a concentration (coughs) retreat. Because on any retreat, I don't know how many people will get into jhana, but it's 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 never most people. It's always less than the half. And that's the case of when I've been a student practicing with others and when I've been teaching. But I have had students um, get into jhana and stable jhana and repeatable jhana and jhana that they can maintain for some time at home before they get distracted um, in just 10-day retreats. I teach it in 10-day retreats. But most of the most people, though, um, will do 10 days and then maybe get to, say, the first jhana in the 10 days because I expect people to be able to stabilize it. I don't push people through quickly. To me, if it's jhana, it's repeatable. If somebody has genuinely entered jhana, and they have, then, then I expect that in the next sitting, they will also enter jhana. Sometimes it takes a few times to kind of figure out how to do it, but once the mind clears the obstacles and learns the path, then one knows how to do it, and it becomes relatively... Um, clear, the path becomes very clear. And so students learn that, and then they're able to do it. And many of my students then come back the next year and do another 10-day retreat, then the following year another 10-day retreat. So over the course of of one 10-day retreat, every year for a few years, they get through it. And usually the first couple times they have to learn the method, and then it goes very quickly. So I've taken people in just 10-day formats um, through the four breath jhanas, the 32 parts of the body, and the color and element casinas, and the formless states, just by people coming back to 10-day retreats. So 10 days actually is okay for some people. There are other people that really, really try very hard and have very good practice, but the mind just doesn't quite cohere. It doesn't quite stabilize doesn't matter if that's a 10-day retreat, a one-month retreat, or a two-month retreat, or four months. Who knows? The conditions have to come together. Sometimes this can be discouraging to people because they want this blissful experience called jhana. I don't find it to be a problem, though, because the, perp- the, the, the essence of this training is to develop concentration. And everybody who does this training that I've talked with has experienced deeper concentration than they've ever known before. So it's the question of the glass half full or half empty. 
If you think, oh no, I didn't get into jhana in my 10-day retreat, I'm a failure, then it's, there's going to be suffering. But if you see concentration is developing, concentration is building, the stability of the mind is growing stronger and stronger, what difference does this kind of signpost or benchmark called jhana, what, what difference does that make? I've heard some traditional teachers say that nobody gets into jhana in their first lifetime. <laughs> Who knows if this is true? But I've heard some people say that, that, that you have to practice it for some time. And so it's very important that you try in this life to cultivate jhana because it's a gift to your next whoever inherits your karmic stream. Why not practice for someone else? It's very selfless. So I think the attitude that we have to our cultivation is very important. And it's very important to let go of the assessments and the judgments, to let go of the arrogance that thinks we should experience something because we've read about it, and to just be willing to, to deepen the wholesome states of concentration to whatever extent we can. Concentration, mindfulness, um, clarity, wisdom, all the good stuff, the loving kindness, the compassion, to just cultivate these. And not worry about any particular states that they, um, you know, the signposts for those states. So I'm, I'm most familiar with the uh, yoga tradition where they take you through the different steps, concentration, meditation, samadhi. And I just recently moved to this area, and so I've just been exposed to a lot of vipassana, a lot of people practicing vipassana, not that many people practicing concentration. And I'm wondering if there's something lost in not teaching the concentration so heavily like you describe. I think it's really beautiful. Is it, I guess my question is, is one able to get vipassana without the jhana? Also a good question. Um, In the tradition, uh, there's a discourse where the Buddha says, um, one person cultivates concentration and then insight. Another person cultivates insight and then concentration. And another person cultivates them in pairs, you know, yoked together in pairs. And then a fourth person, this one's a little hard to describe, but it basically um, means that there's this incredible sense of urgency where they kind of come together um, through this this, um, kind of faith and urgency in practice. So there are basically four approaches. And um, I like to think of our practice in a very, like, lasting, at least our whole lives. I hope none of you ever stop. You know, keep practicing, cultivating wisdom, cultivating the mind, cultivating it in one way or another for the whole rest of your life right up until your last breath. If there's another life, I hope you continue then. Who knows? But I have such love of this Dhamma practice that I I don't see any reason why there has to be one particular mode. I think there are times in our practice when we focus on the development of 
one aspect or another. For example, there was a time in my practice after this, this, during this year-long retreat where I wanted to focus primarily on concentration. And so I took a period of time to focus on the concentration and then to develop the, the insight based on it. There was another period in my, in my practice a few, years, um, a, a, a few years before that where I decided I wanted to focus on loving-kindness. So for about two years, I did loving-kindness as my primary practice. Uh, and then there were other times when I was focusing on, you know, one thing or another. Um, I always come back to mindfulness as the basic. I like mindfulness of the body myself, but that's my own d- disposition. And, but whatever practice I have ever tried, I see it always in the context of the Eightfold Path. It's based in virtue in conduct, in clarity of conduct. There's the development of mind, and it's for the purpose of liberating wisdom. So if we bring the clarity of the view that understands the purpose of the path and understands the whole of the path, then if we give some weeks, some months, some years to the development of any particular factor, that's just one piece in our practice. And it doesn't need to create a hierarchy of one practice being better than another or see a deficiency um, in, in, if, one is, if, if we're doing one thing rather than another and to trust that we will swing back in another year or another retreat or another decade or who knows, another lifetime. And then we'll pick up the rest. In one way or another, we are c- cultivating the conditions that lead to freedom. Comments, questions? Is the Abhidhamma um, essentially Theravadan or um, was it more developed in the uh, uh, Tibetan? Uh, the, the seeds of the Abhidhamma were developed during the Buddha's life. But it was really developed as a system shortly after, after the Buddha's death. But the seeds are there even in the early suttas. Um, but it was kind of codified and uh, elaborated and incorporated into the canon um, after the Buddha's life. Well, some hundred years after one of those councils. Um, it is not necessarily Theravada. There is also uh, the, the Abhidhamma in the Tibetan tradition. There's Abhidhamma that uh, the Abhidhamma texts are in all the, all the Buddhist traditions and the Mahayana as well. Uh, many scholars will compare, you know, the Sanskrit. They'll, they'll do all the comparing. I'm not a scholar. I don't read Chinese. I don't read Pali. So um, it was quite hard enough to read the English. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I found most interesting about um, my recent study of the Abhidhamma was just the clarity of looking at the mind, not from the big concepts, but breaking things down and deconstructing them. And then applying the understanding that's occurred from the deconstruction, applying that to the, to the general experiences. So the, the, the understandings then are 
are absolutely vivid just when walking out in the street and putting, you know, driving down the freeway and putting, you know, the, the, the groceries in the refrigerator. What's, it's clear how the mind and the body are functioning. It's clear how um, wholesome states can arise in unwholesome states, why the mind shifts into wise attention sometimes or unwise attention, why I would get angry or why I would get ha- experience equanimity. That all becomes very clear because in um, because the the I've already seen it in the small ways. Hmm? You can see the gears turn exactly, and you know the pieces, and so you can put the puzzle together really quickly. Things become very clear, and I appreciated that. I appreciated that clarity, and in this whole practice, I've been enjoying the systematic nature of it. It's not haphazard. There's a path there, and you do one practice, and it's like a stepping stone. And then that doing that practice makes the next practice easy. It's like it creates the conditions for the next training. And then you go to that stepping stone, and it's easy because it's based upon what was just cultivated previously. And then from that stepping stone, you go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, each one cultivating skills and conditions that make the next one easy. Before I was introduced to this systematic practice, it was so much more difficult because I was jumping from here to over there to over there to over there to over here. Now, yes, it was all really great dhamma. I loved my practice before, but it didn't feel like I had the kind of of, um, clarity of of progress, one could say, or clarity of direction. And... um, Yes, there was resonance and coherence with that whole path and the directedness of the path. I mean, it is a direct path um, that leads, you know, leads to liberation. So um, once in a while, it's nice to follow a strict path. Then we have to integrate that, and our lives are not strict paths. You know, our lives have to deal with life. And then we have to just deal with whatever we're dealt that day, that minute, that, you know, that second. Um, and it doesn't necessarily fall into the pattern. But because we've gone through a pattern, we can piece things together and respond, um, I think, with a tremendous, with a lot more equanimity and a lot more understanding because of it. Some people are not so crazy about the systematic nature. They feel a little bit confined by it. I felt liberated by it. I felt like, oh, there's a curriculum here. You know, it was, it was a training. And it's described as a course, as a training. And it's 100% experiential, yes. All my study occurred after the retreat in order to write the book. Because I wanted to put all those footnotes at the back. You'll see there's a lot of footnotes. Um, so I had to find the sources. And what I wanted to do by my study is find the textual sources for everything that I had just been trained in. Because in the training, it was all instruction, meditation, and, and it wasn't, there was no reading of the, of the books in the retreat. But I wanted to find the, tec- the, the sources in the tradition for every practice that we undertook. And so that required the study. And that's part of how it opened up. And I realized, gosh, all these things were already available to me, but it just hadn't been presented in a form. And that was 
uh, that supported my wish to, to, to write the book to, in a way to offer it to others so that it would be um, not as obscure to you if you want to undertake parts of these trainings. Question here. Armed with your books and a few random weekend retreats here and there, uh, what do you think a person could accomplish? I have to ask that pragmatic question. You know, uh, for those of us who can only attend a few weekend retreats here and there, and accomplish. On weekend retreats, unless you're really, really special, you're not likely to get into jhana. But you can certainly do a lot to cultivate concentration, to cultivate mindfulness, and to develop a clarity of mind. There's a tremendous amount we can do. And I don't underestimate the power of a daily sitting practice either. Those little drops in the bucket really do fill the pot. And every time that we look at our minds and try to understand what it's doing, and when it's doing something that we understand is going to lead to suffering, and we restrain it, and when we, it's doing something that we understand is, gonna lead to, is leading towards compassion or wisdom, and we give energy to that, we are doing a lot. We're changing the conditioning of our minds. And that happens in our daily practice as much as weekend retreats. Well, why don't we end with a loving-kindness practice? And Well, maybe I'll say just a couple things before we do this. Um, I'm happy to sign books if you want. Um, just approach me afterwards. Um, this coming uh, week, no, I'm sorry, this, there's a holiday in like 10 days, uh, President's Day holiday, and um, we're going to have a, a non-residential retreat in Menlo Park that basically is going to go through some of the practices that are based on the, the concentration sections, the first half of the book. And we'll look at those, at practice them together, and discuss them. So it's kind of like discussion with the author um, and practice, you could say. So we'll be spending the weekend. If you're interested, check out the website or pick up one of the flyers. Um, we also do uh, a 10-day retreat once a year, and a spring ret- our spring retreat is just a four-day retreat, and that's coming up. Flyers are here, and the information is on our website. Um, we have a Dharma study group uh, this year focusing on the connected discourses of the Buddha, the Samyutta Nikaya, and we just are entering our second month of it. It will go on for probably three years. So if anybody's interested in joining that, we have people from the East Bay and Marin and San Francisco that have all joined that class, and there is an online component to it. So um, if you're interested in that, we're only accepting registrations for the next couple of weeks, and then that group will be closed for the year. And then it'll open again for the following year, and closed, and this, the same group will go through the study for that year. And we have all kinds of programs. You can just check our website to see what you're interested in. But we, we do have monthly day-longs, um, which I 
is more likely to be able people come over from Berkeley for the monthly daylongs because traffic isn't a problem on the Saturdays. I don't recommend going over for a weekday evening because traffic is a bit of a problem. <laughs> um, the group's name is Insight Meditation South Bay, and so the um, website is imsb.org. And if you pick up a bookmark or a flyer, you'll get the um, you'll get the website. Or if you just search for my name, Shyla Catherine, you'll find everything. Think for a moment of some good quality or some kind action, generous action that you have taken today. Or think of a good quality about yourself generally. Maybe you're honest. Maybe you try to help people. And as you think of your good quality, wish yourself well. You might use the phrases, may I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. Use any phrases that make sense for you to surround yourself with kind and universally kind thoughts. just as you want to be happy, so all beings want to be happy. And allow those kind wishes and good thoughts to embrace everybody in this room, people you know and don't know. May we all be happy, free from mental distress.
May we all be healthy, free from illness and pain. And may we live with ease in the world. And then allow the loving kindness to flow to all beings in this entire world. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be healthy and free from pain. May all beings live with ease. Thank you very much for your attention. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.